My name is Youssef Munayer. I'm the executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, a coalition of hundred, hundreds of groups working uh, throughout the United States to advocate for change uh, in U.S. policy for advancing uh, Palestinian rights. Uh, it is a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Anthony, for uh, putting this together. Uh, and thank you in, for, uh, in particular uh, for putting Palestine at the top of the agenda at the conference. Uh, and I know that I speak for many, particularly uh, many uh, Arabs uh, throughout the Arab world, uh, as public opinion polls have shown us consistently, uh, that they would hope uh, that countries around the world and in their region as well continue to put Palestine at the top of their respective agendas uh, uh, all the time. Um, we're here to talk about the Palestinian future. Uh, and before I introduce uh, our outstanding panel today, I will just say uh, a few brief things to frame our conversation. Uh, we're going to be hearing a lot about the situation uh, on the ground. And I think uh, what uh, you will see is that perhaps uh, at uh, no time since 1948, uh, have Palestinians been in such a uh, difficult and weak position uh, relative to the strength that Israel can bring to bear uh, against them. Uh, we know that there is division among Palestinians, although we are seeing the stirrings of uh, some form of reconciliation between two uh, Palestinian factions. Uh, the uh, fractured nature of Palestinian politics continues to be a challenge. Uh, and the ironic thing is that despite this material weakness, there is also tremendous Israeli vulnerability today in ways that have not existed before. Uh, we see a uh, Israeli politics that has doubled down on uh, the policies of the extreme right continues to move further uh, in that uh, direction uh, and is alienating uh, people who believe in the values that uh, governments, particularly governments in the West, claim to espouse to, uh, the values of freedom, justice, and equality. So there are certainly opportunities uh, for uh, Palestinians today to create new coalitions, to find new avenues towards strength uh, and leverage. Uh, and the question is, how is it possible for them to seize uh, that opportunity? And I hope that's something that our uh, panel could get into at some point uh, today uh, and uh, perhaps further into during our question uh, and answer session. And so uh, with that, I would like to begin by introducing our panel in the order in which uh, they will speak. Uh, Mr. Sean uh, Carroll, who is, there he is, uh, here on uh, my left, is an international development executive with 30 years of experience working in 65 different countries across Africa, the Americas, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. And as of September of 2017, uh, he is president and CEO of American Near East Refugee Aid, ANERA, uh, working with Palestinian and Syrian refugees and other vulnerable populations uh, in Palestine and Lebanon. ANERA is an organization that does uh, amazing work, humanitarian work, 
uh, on the ground in Palestine and beyond. Uh, and Sean has recently returned uh, from the region, so we look forward to hearing from him his impressions of the humanitarian situation uh, on the ground. Uh, following him will be Mr. Talib Salhab, who is here on my right. He is an international development professional with over 20 years of executive leadership experience uh, in the private and nonprofit sectors. And as Vice President of Global Programs at IREX, an international development organization, he's led uh, programs operating in over 100 countries, including the Youth Development Resource Centers operating in all 13 governorates of the West Bank and Jerusalem. And so uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from Talib about his impressions on youth uh, unemployment and the particular challenge that that presents uh, to uh, Palestinians. And then last but not least, of course, uh, on the far left uh, is uh, Noura Arakat, who's a human rights attorney, activist, and assistant professor at George Mason University, uh, a co-founding editor of Jadalia, uh, which is an e-magazine, and an editorial board member at the Journal for, uh, pa of Palestine Studies. Uh, and uh, Noura is a fantastic uh, voice uh, on uh, Palestinian issues and a crystal clear uh, analyst who will round us out by uh, analyzing the political situation and uh, how uh, we can move forward from here. So with that, um, I will turn it over to Sean. Sean? Great, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Munaya. Thank you, Yusuf. Um, I feel like a bit of an imposter. Uh, not only, of course, am I not Palestinian, I am definitely not a Palestinian expert, an expert on Palestine. And in case you don't believe me, I'm meeting for the first time today my fellow three uh, panelists. So that tells you I really am not an expert on, on Palestine. Thank you, uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony and the National Council of U.S. Arab Relations. My predecessor, Bill Corcoran, who was with the NERA for 10 years, gave me a, a large handful of people I should go see immediately. And of course, uh, John Duke was at the top of the list, and I had a very good conversation with him my first week on the job, and I hope and expect to be able to call on his council um, throughout my tenure at ANIRA. And thank you also for uh, dedicating this conference to, among others, Peter Gubser, who was ANIRA president for 30 years, in addition to being a board member of NCUSAR. Um, Bill Corcoran told me that the biggest challenge I would face as president and CEO of ANIRA is keeping spirits up. It's a, tough, it's a tough region to work in. Palestine is a tough country to work in. Most of our just over 150 staff are from the region, more than 90% are working and from the communities they live in. They, they, they're from and grew up the ref, in the refugee camps that we work in. Uh, only one of our 140 staff in Palestine and Lebanon is, uh, is an expat. Paul Butler is our Palestine country director. He's here. I'm joined also uh, by Nasser uh, Kadus, our chief agronomist in the West Bank, and Hani Almadoun, who's our director of donor development. So if you have follow-up questions, I may call on them. But let me give you a couple of impressions from my recent trip, and then a, a couple of focus points on, on Gaza, which I think really is the key immediate question uh, on the future of Palestine. So I lived in, in, in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, and Bet Hanina, 
20 years ago, my, my twin um, children were born there. I lived there from 96 to 98. There were still hopes post-Oslo. Um, and I hadn't been back until five years ago when I took my family on a, on a visit. My kid, we left before my children were a year old, so they really didn't know where they were born, and so we took them back to visit. And the impressions with a 15-year hiatus, the, the biggest one was the wall, right? That's a, it, was, it was very uh, distressing to see the wall. And the wall was right next to our house in Beit Hanina. Um, and a wall, you know, purely for the aesthetics, it's ugly. Um, but it's depressing, it's divisive. And the wall never has been a long-term solution. So that was the big impression from the visit five years ago. The visit most recently, a week after I started at ANIRA um, just last month, was the amazing amount of construction. And I was only in the West Bank, and I, we didn't get a permit in time for Gaza, and I have it now, and I'll be going to Gaza next week. But I was only in the West Bank, and the, the impression was the amount of, of construction. And to the untrained or to the at atrophied eye, it was a little difficult in the distance to tell whether that was an Israeli settlement or a Palestinian. Uh, expansion of an existing Palestinian town. Uh, and of course, there's too much settlement building. Um, I don't need to spend time on that. The Palestinian construction, though, was, was quite impressive. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is emigre money. You see, it's not built from the economy um, there. A lot of the apartments are bought by Palestinians but empty. But you look at Rawabi and, and Ishtashadi in, in Ramallah, but also not just in Ramallah. We were in, in Jenin. We have a, a fantastic wastewater reuse project in Jenin. And, and uh, Yusuf, you mentioned that Anira does humanitarian work, but we're also doing quite a bit of development work and, and have been, and, incre and we're increasing our development work. And the project in Jenin, uh, the wastewater, the sewage treatment plant, the water had been washing down the wadi the Israelis were fining the Palestinian Authority because the water was going into Israel and, of course, using the water themselves. So Anira suggested that we could work uh, with the Palestinian Water Authority, with the Janine Municipality, and with farmers to, connect, to use that water for uh, agricultural irrigation. And we worked with a, with a farmer's cooperative. Um, they were skeptical. It was gray water. Uh, but they put in some of their own money. They're now doing... Uh, eight to ten harvests a year instead of one. They're going to make their money back in the first year. They hired away a nearest staff person to be the cooperative director. They bought him a car. They've got more farmers who want to join. They want to scale. Janine has two neighborhoods that aren't connected yet to the wastewater treatment plant, so there's more supply to meet this growing demand. The cooperative and the municipality on their own without a NERA have worked to figure out how to get some water uh, to the parks and for beautification in Janine. And I got the sense that Janine, which under, which only a few years ago was suffering terribly, was really on the brink of becoming a model city, sort of the, the Medellin of, of Palestine, if you will. So very impressed with what was going on. Politically, you know, the two-state solution, if it's not on, if it's, if it's not dead already, it's on life support. And Palestinians told me and you can see and feel, and it's absolutely uh, human nature and perfectly uh, human. They just want a normal, safe, healthy life, jobs with opportunity. They're tired of politics and conflict, and they said, we'll live under whomever will provide us that. 
Now, what about Gaza? And I, uh, Paul Butler gave us a very good presentation at our board meeting this week, and I'll, and I'll use some of what he, he told us, and I haven't been there yet to see Anira's work. Once I do, I'm sure I'm going to be very excited about some of the development work that, uh, that we're doing there, but let me give you a, a sense of where I think things are. So on the, on the big picture, uh, donor pledges to Gaza, uh, we're now three years past the Cairo donor conference, and only 53% of the pledged donations have been dispersed. The United States pledged all, uh, dispersed all 277 million of, of, of its funding, but if you look at the top seven uh, donors, 2.725 billion of the 3.5 billion pledge comes from the top seven, so 78% of it. But those top seven pledgers have actually dispersed only 43% of what they pledged to disperse. And the GCC are the big laggards. They've done less than 24% three years later. This was all supposed to be dispersed in the first year. And it's lots of different reasons, right? It's politics, um, it's access issues, it's, it's, uh, it's corruption. Uh, but Qatar and Saudi Arabia have only done 22% of what they pledge. Those are the two largest uh, donors, and the UAE is at 30%. So why is it? Part of it is access, and this affects our programming, even though we have, ANIRA has gotten through USAID and the Palestinian Community Infrastructure Development Project, we have gotten some of that funding, but the access is restricted, as we know, in and out of, in and out of Gaza, enforced by, by both Israel and Egypt. The coordination of government activities in, in the territories, COGET, um, uh, controls those entry points. Egypt controls uh, Rafah, but as we know, there's been an average of only three days a month over the past three years where Rafah was open. Um, obviously, hopefully, the reconciliation changes that. There was a fantastic uh, and uh, disheartening flowchart of how the Gaza reconstruction mechanism works that I, that I can't show you now, and, and you'll be grateful because it's dizzying and, and depressing to see uh, what we need to go through to get infrastructure and development projects approved in Gaza. But let me just give you a sense. Um, since the Cairo uh, uh, conference, 0.8 million tons of cement has gone in and 6.4 million are needed. So 5.6 million tons of cement required has not been able to get in. Let me just in my last couple of minutes here tell you uh, what we have been able to do and, and what I think needs to happen. So under the Palestinian uh, Community Infrastructure Development Project funded by USAID, we have 18 projects in, in uh, Gaza. Ten have been completed, three are ongoing, and five are pending. But those five pending ones are the larger ones, the more difficult to get through the Gaza reconstruction mechanism. And the GRM is, 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 uh, is jointly run, um, but usually it's a 19, 20-year-old Israeli army soldier that we have to deal with who probably doesn't know much about it and, uh, and may not uh, have a whole lot of care about uh, helping us get stuff in. So it's been a real struggle. Um, the projects we've completed, 290,000 beneficiaries in five cities and communities in Gaza, but as I said, uh, small amounts. The, uh, the predecessor to PCID for ANIRA was EWAS, the Emergency Water and Sanitation Project. Over five years, there were 67 million 
dollars in that project and 20% of it went to Gaza. PCID is $100 million over five years, but right from the start there was a recognition Gaza would be difficult and so only 10% was expected to go to Gaza. That's a real shame right from the beginning, right? That's a shame that we from the start have to say of a, of a $100 million project only 10 million is going to go to Gaza. Gaza's over two million people, three times the size of DC. There are 88 countries roughly in the world that are smaller than Gaza. So uh, this is a country that's not getting uh, the help it needs. We've spent only three million of that 10. Hopefully those projects get, uh, get released through the, through the GRM and, and we <clears> get to do all 10. But there's, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. What we see is that the Palestinians working with us the, the NGOs, the municipalities that we work with are doing real development, winter, women's centers, youth centers, irrigation projects, water and sanitation projects. Uh, and that's what we really hope the reconciliation uh, process, uh, politics, uh, increased uh, donations will help us be able to work with the Palestinians we work with. So I'll just uh, leave you with the, with the thought and the, the policy uh, recommendation, uh, open up the entry and exit points and let life flow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks, Sean. And thank you, Dr. Anthony and the National Council for your kind invitation. Um, I think Ambassador Zumlo did a, did a great job summarizing the current political situation and state of affairs. And I have to say, as a, as a relatively young Palestinian-American, I'd, I'd like to say it's a breath of fresh air to hear someone talking about the importance of the new generation and of investing and supporting youth. Uh, so that was great to hear. So in my remarks today, I'm going to focus on one aspect uh, of the challenge uh, currently in Palestine, which is the issue of youth unemployment. Um, as many of you know, the youth unemployment challenge and crisis is one of the most pressing issues facing the world today. Um, today, nearly 300 million youth globally are unemployed and not participating in education or training programs. The Middle East and North Africa regions have one of the highest rates of youth unemployment in the world, with 28% of young people being unemployed and many more underemployed and not participating in the labor market altogether. The situation not only poses an immediate challenge to the youth, but is also symptomatic of greater labor market challenges, which have far-reaching economic development and security implications for the region as a whole. In most parts of the world, the youth unemployment crisis is fueled by a downturn in the economy, and a skills mismatch. Youth that simply don't have the skills to meet the needs of today's labor market. In Palestine, these factors, combined with the negative repercussions of 50 years of Israeli occupation, fuel the youth unemployment crisis. According to the ILO and UNCA, the United Nations Trade on Development uh, Conference, Palestinian youth unemployment is one of the highest in the region. In 2016, youth unemployment in the West Bank was 26% and in Gaza, 57%. This does not include the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of youth who just stopped looking for jobs 
altogether. The unemployment rate in Gaza of 57% was among the highest in the world, which provides strong evidence that the labor market was barely functioning and that a young person today is likely to be unemployed for a very long period of time. GDP per capita in Palestine today is at the same level that it was in 1999, which is a clear indication of the human cost and lost economic potential, resulting in large part from the repercussions of the occupation, and in the case of Gaza, the ongoing 10-year siege and blockade of Gaza. The situation is further exacerbated by restrictions on the import of essential goods, which escalate production costs, depress investment, and set the economy onto a path of high employment and widespread poverty. Unless current trends are reversed, unemployment, unemployment will worsen, per capita income will fall, food security will deepen, and poverty will further increase, compounding the risk of political crisis fueled by further economic decline. So this is the situation at a kind of 30,000 foot level. So the question is what, what can be done about this? Dr. Anthony asked us all to, to present some specific policy recommendations. Uh, needless to say that in the big picture, um, the, the, a resolution to the Arab-Israelis, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is gonna be the most important uh, element that's gonna address uh, this issue and many other issues. But in the absence of a political settlement, uh, the prospects of which seem pretty bleak in the short term. There are things that policymakers uh, and the donor community can do to help address this critically, critically pressing challenge. So there are three things that I want to focus on. Number one, the investment in and support of workforce development programs. Um, in my career, I've had the privilege and the opportunity of working all throughout uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and Jerusalem on workforce development programs. And I've had firsthand experience uh, seeing how small interventions, targeted interventions around job placement and training programs can really help transform the lives of Palestinian youth and really make a difference in their lives. So it's critically important for the donor community to understand that it's important to support those, those types of programs. And programs supported by USAID, Al-Walid Philanthropies, and many others that are relatively modest investments can make a tremendous difference uh, for the young people. The second area, given the relatively lack uh, of a number of jobs, is around entrepreneurship and the importance uh, to support those types of programs, uh, specifically programs that generate self-employment and micro-entrepreneurship. And the third is around virtual jobs as we live in a, in a new, uh, new economy where people can work anywhere in the world. There is a big promise for Palestinians to work virtually and support those types of programs. So those are three in the workforce development. Second is around educational reform. And I was in the West Bank uh, several months ago meeting with Dr. Sabri Saidam, who's the current Minister of Education, who I think is a visionary leader and understands the need to reform the education system. So things like strengthening the vocational and training systems is really important. Embedding entrepreneurship programs and other within the school curricula is also important and can make a big difference. 
uh, and giving youth the options of going on a vocational track post-secondary instead of just seeking four-year degrees because unemployment among college graduates is actually much higher than it is among non-college graduates in Palestine and, and frankly in most of the Arab world. And, and the third area is, is private sector engagement and the need to provide support to the private sector. Uh, once again, I've, I've worked on programs supported by the World Bank and others in which uh, the private sector is supported to hire and engage Palestinian interns, thus building their skills, engaging the private sector in identification of skill standards and related training needs is critically, critically important. I know I have time uh, here, Yusuf is keeping time, so I will end by saying this. As I said, nothing is going to address this conflict holistically than the end of the occupation, but in the interim, these programs are critically, critically important. Uh, one of the most enjoying part of, of my life and my career is to actually get to young, the, meet the young people whose lives the programs I've worked on have impacted. And I've met young people all throughout Palestine who were unemployed for a year, two years, three years. Many of them have lost complete hope. Young women who have been sitting at home for, for years on end. And these programs really help transform their lives, help transform their communities, and set a, a really, really important uh, standard uh, for, for, for the future to come. Supporting these programs will have far-reaching positive economic development and security implications for the Palestinian people and for the region as a whole. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Tal. I know it's it's uh, difficult to try to keep it um, uh, to the the time limitation, but because we're running a little bit late and want to try to accommodate questions, uh, we're we're trying to to keep things a little bit more concise. Nora, please. Um, that's the worst thing you can possibly tell me. I'm not uh, I'm not known for being concise, but I will try right now. I want to answer the call that Yusuf presented to us, which is how do we evaluate the future based on the equation of the material weakness of Palestinians together with the vulnerability that Israel is experiencing, together with what Ambassador Zumlot has pointed out to us, which is an unprecedented nature of non-violent mass movement amongst Palestinians marked by one of his examples of a mass uh, protest in Jerusalem that forced Israel to remove its security cameras around the Al-Aqsa compound. He didn't mention, but I'd like to mention, the April 2017 mass hunger strike of over 1,400 Palestinian political prisoners who within, we have to understand that they're still governed under a military occupation which allows for Israel to incarcerate any Palestinian without charge or trial under an emergency regime that has uh, uh, been in place for over seven decades, which is a bit of a contradiction when you think of emergency and, and its temporary nature. Um, to date, from 1967 to the present, over 80% of the Palestinian population has been uh, detained, and today 600 of them are detained without charge or trial under administrative detention. In April 2017, a mass hunger strike for over two months was waged in order to, uh, in order to improve those conditions and to bring these, uh, these unacceptable, unacceptable ongoing forms of domination to continue. Um, 
which are unfortunately falling on deaf ears because we continue to return to political paradigms that unfortunately are excluding this population that is fighting for its life. Within the United States, it's no better. The Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is a completely grassroots-led movement from the bottom up, has been ridiculed at first for being too naive to the point where it's now being criminalized. The Senate is considering an anti-BDS bill that would subject Americans engaging in nonviolent protests and the exercise of their free speech to up to 20 years of detention and over a quarter of a million dollars in civil fines. There has to be, there, there's something of a contradiction in terms um, when we consider this and consider also that there are 14 states that are trying to uh, outlaw a movement that is otherwise ridiculed as being ineffective and naive. So what I want to do, given this context, is think about um, what does that mean for the future? And for the future, I want to ask a question, and I'll leave it as a question and, 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 and share some empirical evidence of why we, what justifies asking this question, which is at which point, at which point do, does the Palestinian leadership and a Palestinian movement and their allies decide that the U.S. has proved to be more counterproductive to achieving Palestinian independence than it has been benef beneficial? That's the primary question I want to ask. To ask that question, I want to periodize uh, the forms of the Palestinian struggle for independence, what others may call resistance to their subjugation, as an exercise of, of thinking historically that the present is not timeless. That this present we're living in has, is historical and has been subject to historical <clears throat> junctures, which means that the Palestinian leadership has the option of shifting course as it has in the past. For the lack of time, I won't go into details about these junctures. I'll simply be descriptive, but happy to answer questions about them. I provide uh, four different junctures. The first is from 1917 to 1948, during which time Palestinians resisted the British mandate in an effort to prove their eligibility for statehood and independence alongside a number of other anti-colonial movements that were seeking their independence. In that moment, Palestinians proved their literacy rates, their education rates, demonstrated their ability for self-organization. They had been organized and categorized as an A mandate, which meant that they were close enough to independence and self-rule and did not need the extreme tutelage of, of a mandatory power. But they were never eligible for that independence, not as a matter of legal determination, but as a matter of sovereign fiat. When Lord Balfour said, he says, and this is worthwhile, as Ambassador Zumlet has pointed out, we're in 100 years since this moment, and we haven't really changed these conditions. Lord Balfour says, quote, the great powers are committed to Zionism, and Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs and future hopes of far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit the ancient lands. That prima facie ineligibility, Palestinians could not prove that they could be eligible for self-rule because of a decision by an overriding power. From 1967, then the next phase, to uh, 
uh, sorry, from 1948 to 1967, Palestinians now enter a different phase where they are a derivative of an Arab cause. Where Arab countries are waging this battle, Palestinians are a derivative concern and are mainly refugees framed as a humanitarian issue where we need to provide aid in order to resuscitate them, which is a very comfortable conversation to have because you can have aid and maintain domination indefinitely. And it was the 1967 war, it was the catastrophic Arab defeat that shifted the calculus of the Palestinian national movement, especially because the, the Egypt, uh, Egypt under Jamal Abdel Nasser, or Gamal Abdel Nasser, excuse me, and Jordan under the leadership of King Hassan accepted the terms of Security Council Resolution 242, which reified the juridical erasure of a Palestinian people as it had been inscribed in the Palestine Mandate in 1922. In 1967, they don't correct this mistake but instead continue to refer to Palestinians as refugees and acquiesce to respecting the borders of Israel without ensuring the rights of Palestinians. This then catapults the Palestinian national movement into the third phase between 1967 and 1993, which most regard as the revolutionary phase of, of the Palestinian movement. During this time, and especially from 73 to 78, where we see the PLO establish itself at the United Nations under resolutions 3236 and 3237 as the sole and legitimate leadership of the Palestinian people with the, with the status of a member, uh, a non-voting uh, entity of the United Nations, we see Palestinians take the helm of their own, uh, of their own future. But even within this moment, Yasser Arafat, chairman of the PLO at the time, and also the leader of a moderate uh, movement within the PLO, had been angling to enter into the U.S.'s sphere of influence. So what we see culminate in 1991, and then in the signing of Oslo in 1993, the seeds for that were planted in 19, as early as 1973, when the PLO, moderate camp of the PLO, realizes that Egypt and Syria are not eager to wage a conventional war against Israel. We have to enter into the Geneva into the Geneva Peace Conference. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, is adamant that the PLO remain outside and marginalized and instead disaggregates the Arab-Israeli conflict to establish bilateral relations between the US-Israel and individual Arab states in a way that actually paralyzes the PLO and diminishes its influence. But that desire to enter into the U.S.'s sphere of influence in the 1970s comes to a head and that opportunity presents itself in, on the heels of the Palestinian uprising or what's known as the Intifada in 1987 to 1991. Yasser Arafat, Chairman Arafat enters into that peace agreement without adequate and sufficient regard to the details of the agreement which have ensured that Palestinians can achieve no more than autonomy or derivative sovereignty that is conditional on Israeli acquiescence. That holding position continues to be the one that Palestinians remain in since 1993 to the present. Now, if you compare each of those junctures that I've laid out that are driven by Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian relationship to the US and other dominant powers, this is the longest lasting phase. All other phases were much shorter and were reconsidered and reassessed based on realities. And my question is, at which point do we reconsider 
this phase and this approach of ensuring that we remain within the U.S.'s sphere of influence when the U.S. has proved itself unable and unwilling to change its course of action and to pressure Israel into um, acknowledging Palestinian self-determination as a right, delivering Palestinian independence and statehood as Palestinians has demanded. For those who want, um, am I okay on time? One minute? Yes. I have a number of ways that I can describe to you what under these 25 years, how the situation has, has worsened in empirical terms. Suffice it to say, I'll just compliment what Ambassador Zumlot said about the, uh, Jerusalem. The campaign to Judaize Jerusalem is explicit in the Israeli master plan of Jerusalem master plan of 2000, where it has stated a demographic goal, a demographic policy goal to shift the balance of, of Jewish Israelis to Palestinian stateless persons from 70-30% to 60-40%, excuse me, from 60-40% to 70% to 30% by 2020. In this past week alone, Three homes have been demolished and families have been expelled from their East Jerusalem homes. Since the beginning of this year, 45 homes have been demolished in East Jerusalem, making 126 people homeless, including 70 minors. These minors can do nothing with a job if they have no home, and they have no rights to stay in that home. So I'll end by saying that the apex of Palestinian hope for the U.S. to usher in a solution was under the Clinton administration as we had been coming off the heels of tragedies in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia, and uh, President Clinton was the most eager to deliver this. I think that since then, it's been a downward spiral to the present where this administration has appointed an ambassador, David Friedman, who only acknowledges that 2% of the West Bank is occupied. That's the condition that we're in. So there must be a shift in course for the Palestinians. And there's a robust history that has demonstrated that we're adept to that change and that the Palestinians can change and that we should change. So at, the question is, at which point does the evidence suffice to justify this shift? Or is this a political decision that's outside of the realm of logic and reason and based on blind faith alone? Oslo was a mistake from the beginning. Its structural limitations have become obvious throughout the Second Intifada, or what's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada. And for those who have not been convinced, the question is, okay, at which point will you be convinced? So I'm asking a question to the audience and the policymakers. At which point do you think that we have reached the limit of the U.S.'s ability to actually be an honest broker and brush usher us into a new era? For me, it's a bit like uh, climate change in the Trump administration. Despite what we've seen in evidence and the, despite what we've seen in recent catastrophes that have ripped apart Houston, Florida, Puerto Rico, our administration continues to insist that there is no proof for climate change and instead is pulling out of the uh, Paris Climate Protocol. And I fear, I fear that we are headed on the same dead end as uh, Palestinian leadership and the predicament vis-a-vis -vis the U.S.'s detrimental role is on this course. So I ask again, must, must we wait much longer uh, to be harmed by these conditions, or can we agree on a particular point when the Palestinians should shift course and begin to engage in multilateralism and internationalism away from uh, U.S. tutelage? Thank you.
Thank you very much, Nora. I know um, the challenge of surveying 100 years of history and the limited time we <laughs> gave you was immense, but I think you met it exceedingly well, so thank you for that. Uh, we have a little bit of time for um, uh, Q&A, uh, and I would like to uh, address a, a couple questions that we've received from, from the audience to, to the panel for whoever wants to uh, address them. Um, how do you see the Trump administration's commitment to the two-state solution, and how would this affect the future of peace negotiations? <laughs> well, Yusuf, I'm sure you're going to participate in this as well. well it's all you. I, I've got my thoughts, but we'll leave it to the panel first. And I would love to hear your thoughts as well. I'll, I'll just say in short, I think that the Trump administration's commitment to the two-state solution is not a commitment that is based on what Palestinians have demanded by the contours of UN Security Council's Resolution 242 and 338 and other norms of international law, but instead, in his eagerness to achieve a deal, it's achieving a deal based on what um, Israel is willing to concede rather than, for example, what might be viable, what might be necessary, what might be just and moral um, or legal in, on, on those terms. And so the desire to achieve this, we've already received indicators that, you know, his son-in-law who has been um, an envoy to the Middle East on this issue has been received by the Palestinian leadership with coldness, which should tell us a lot of what we don't know exactly what's been offered, but it should tell us a lot that it's not um, hopeful. Uh, we've also understood as a result of 25 years of studying this issue under the peace process framework that the most of what's being offered, and I think the most that has been offered in um, the Camp David talks, is uh, derivative sovereignty is autonomy, is control over certain areas, much like what was presented to Namibia, also formerly known as Southwest Africa, as well as black Africans in South Africa during the apartheid era in what's known as the Homeland Act, where black Africans under the dominance of a South African um, white regime Afrikaner regime were offered Bantustans uh, where they can control their own economy where they can uh, run their own elections, where they can govern themselves and maintain sewage and garbage and education, but within uh, limited areas of sovereignty, Namibia and the ANC rejected that, in fact, which um, leads to their independence in the late 80s. And unfortunately, we're in a situation where that is the most that's being offered to Palestinians. And when um, Arafat rejected those terms in 2000, the US administration chastised him for not accepting the most generous offer when it was only the most generous relative to the dismal uh, proposals that had been put on the table, but certainly not even up to par to what international law and morality would have demanded. And, and, and I would just add, and this was actually the topic of uh, the, uh, another question very similar to, to the one that I just asked, uh, was it, you know, when, when Donald Trump said earlier this year, standing beside Benjamin Netanyahu at uh, a press conference in February, he said, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, you know, pick one state, two state, we got to see what the party's like, something, something along those lines. Uh, you know, it, it, it was uh, dismissed by, by many uh, because 
it uh, was written off as sort of an uh, inexperienced uh, president making a statement that didn't really represent the policy of the United States. Um, but I actually think if you, if you look closely at what the administration has been doing at all levels, uh, they have been very careful not to utter the words two-state solution. Uh, and I think what this represents is the reality that the United States looks at both of the parties and says both of the parties are not on board with this anymore. And we can't pretend that that's the case. The Israelis have moved on. They've moved on long ago from, from talking about a two-state solution. The right-wing Israeli government is very open about this. They are consistently uh, advancing plans legislatively through the Israeli Knesset uh, to uh, bring about some forms of annexation of the West Bank. Uh, they are insistent on expanding settlements in an aggressive way, uh, just this week announcing uh, new uh, settlement units in Hebron, which is of course deep inside the West Bank, one of the, the most um, difficult and tense locations in which Israeli apartheid manifests itself. Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 the Trump administration statement, position on the two-state solution, if anything, just underscores the fact that uh, they're willing to let the Israelis lead this process more than any administration before. And they're only going to go as far as the Israelis want them to go, which I think uh, is the worst-case scenario for Palestinians engaging in this process, which, of course, harkens back to uh, Noura's uh, question. Um, I, I want to uh, bring together a couple of the different questions that were uh, posed here um, from the audience regarding uh, development aid and unemployment uh, and try to marry them a little bit with some of the um, concerns raised in uh, Noura's presentation. Um, we, we know that there are great needs when it comes to the humanitarian situation on the ground and development in all sectors of um, Palestinian society and, and the economy, uh, and uh, oftentimes support for those challenges, financial support for those challenges, uh, comes from the very spheres of influence that uh, the Palestinians have shifted into over the last period that Noura described. Uh, how is it that uh, the Palestinian leaders can address this challenge of meeting the very real needs uh, on the ground, uh, knowing full well that often the material support uh, for addressing those needs comes with political strings attached. Sure, you want me to take a crack at that? Um, I mean, I think this is an important question. I think, look, um, there are many, many sources of support for development aid uh, within the Palestinian uh, territories. Obviously, the U.S. Uh, and USAID has been one of the largest contributor and supporter of, of such aid. But there are many uh, also subsidies from the European Union, from individual donors and others. Look, I think it's important to, to separate, and I know it's, it's challenging because um, at the end of the day, there is, a, there is a broader political process and political framework that needs to happen. Um, 
Having said that, it is critically, critically important for these development programs to continue. When you look at youth, 70% uh, of the youth in Palestine under age 30. I mean, you're talking about an entire generation of young people that will be the future leaders of a state if there is ever a, a solution. And so one cannot neglect the needs of, of, those, um, of those young people. Now, I do agree uh, with, with, the, with the issue that sometimes there, is, there are political strings attached. I dealt personally uh, with aid in the Palestinian territories where there is these vetting procedures and, and other strings that come attached with aid. That notwithstanding, I would say by and in large, those programs that are effective and support um, organizations like ANIRA and many others who are doing great work uh, in the Palestinian territories are critically important and need to continue. Yeah, let me just add, um, USAID in, uh, in our Palestine program is the largest donor, but not, not even close to a majority of the funding. We get a lot of different funding. I mean, what we, you know, the folks that are working on the programming are always focused on development, and they're focused on getting the development done without politics interfering. And I think that our, our staff and our partners on the ground, for the most part, um, recognize that. And I, you know, the, the political spat in the Gulf, you know, our answer would be we don't have a dog in that fight, but all of you have Palestine in, in the fight. And all of you are committed to, um, uh, to continuing uh, support, and, and, and it's been lacking, as the, the numbers have, have shown. So we, we want to work with everyone. We have to work with everyone. We get, we get, in addition to thousands of individual donors, we work with 20, 30 different institutions, U.S., um, European, Gulf, international, et cetera, and that's critically important, that we have, we have to uh, work with as, as, as many partners and get as much funding as we can. Just a couple points on the, not on the two-state solution, but on the Trump administration. I think, you know, not only are they coming in with biases, but they're coming in without uh, expertise and without expecting to have been working on this issue, right? They didn't expect to win the election. And so, um, plus with, with, with so many never-Trumpers, persona non grata in the administration, there's a lot of experience and expertise out there in the Middle East that's not in the administration. Now that can provide an opportunity, right? And my understanding is Jason Greenblatt, for one, is a listener and he's talking with Palestinians and he's listening to them. I hope to meet with him soon after my visit um, to Gaza. You know, I understand, I heard that in a meeting with the, I think it was with the Middle East um, Investment Initiative, he was informed that a lot of the illegal building of settlements on Palestinians' lands includes on lands of Palestinians who are U.S. citizens and that apparently affected him um, uh, he was quite astonished to hear that, right? So there's a, there's a learning curve, but that provides opportunity. The focus, the recent focus on Gaza may have started because the sewage is washing up on the shores of Israel. That gets Israel agitated about it, but my understanding is he's taken an interest in figuring out the, the fuel, the electricity, the water problem in Gaza. We, we can only hope we've got to work on that. We have to, we have to uh, and there, you know, there's education. One point I wanted to make on the to really demonstrate the slowing down of reconstruction in Gaza. Under our previous community infrastructure emergency water and sanitation project, we were doing one 10-ton truck a day was going into Gaza just for ANIRA projects. One 10-ton 10 10 truck a day. 
Now, over the first five years, almost five years of the PCID project, it's harder to count because it's um, because the mechanism is harder to count, but it's about one a year. And that is a massive difference. The last thing I'll say, um, and there are a lot of security folks in the room here, you know that uh, generals and, and the U.S. military over the last few years have, have made it a real central part of their mission to argue that the United States and the security of the United States needs defense and diplomacy and development. And the Israeli security uh, forces, the Israeli army, and the security forces at large know that too. They know that collective punishment is not the answer, that there needs to be development, and so hopefully policymakers in this room, our own administration, are talking with Israeli security as much or more as they are with the settlers in the Israeli government and understanding that development is really the key to everyone's security. Thank you, Sean. Uh, we've got a lot of great questions here, and I'm going to try to do my best to get through uh, as many of, of them as possible that, uh, that time will allow. Uh, one of them, uh, uh, which is very relevant to uh, news that has been breaking over the last few weeks, uh, which is the uh, reconciliation uh, agreement uh, between Hamas and Fatah and the return of um, the Ramallah-based uh, PA administration uh, to Gaza uh, is around this question of how the United States deals uh, with this reconciliation agreement, whatever comes out of it, uh, and um, any Palestinian entity in which Hamas is a part. Uh, yesterday, the Israeli uh, Prime Minister's office issued a statement uh, that they will not uh, engage in any way with a Palestinian government that includes any relationship with Hamas unless Hamas does, you know, X, Y, Z, and it was a list of maybe, you know, 12 different demands that basically, um, you know, require Hamas to turn into to Zionists before they would uh, speak to the Israelis. Uh, at the same time, uh, one frequent excuse that the Israelis have for not engaging with the Palestinians in negotiations is that unless there's reconciliation between the Israelis, between Fatah and Hamas, then it makes no sense for the Israelis to talk to uh, the Palestinian government because they are divided and they're not representative of the Palestinians and who do they speak for. So they sort of play both sides. How does the U.S. navigate the political landscape uh, now with the Hamas and Fatah deal when the Israelis are unwilling to work with the Palestinians, uh, whether they are unified or divided? Okay. That's a great question. It was really well put. So I want to do something similar and answer this question in maybe four parts as fast as possible. I, I'm, not, I'm not joking. So <laughs> the first part is to say that um, the first part is to say is that this is not the first time that Israel has presented preconditions to Palestinians. The first time they presented preconditions was to the PLO in 1967 to 1987 on recognizing Israel, renouncing armed resistance, and recognizing uh, the uh, borders, Israeli, or, or, or accepting 242 as a framework. When Palace, the PLO did that in 1991, and re not only entered into Oslo, but then changed its charter to remove a commitment to armed resistance, and then uh, rescinded its resolution 3379, denouncing Zionism as a form of racism, the 1975 resolution. They've done everything. Israel has turned around and said, well, yeah, still, 
right? So even after the PLO acquiesced to every demand that Israel had been making for 20 years, Israel has turned around and said, yeah, we still don't think it's enough. This particular administration, this is my second point, the Mahmoud Abbas administration, which for those of us in this room who are thinking about governance, has been in, in, in place since 2010 without a presidential mandate, has done almost everything that the U.S. and Israel has asked for as a matter of strategic course, right? Because we've never tried this before. Let's do everything that's being asked. Let's enter into security coordination. Let's renounce armed violence. Let's accept that refugees don't necessarily, at least he is president, that he wouldn't return as a refugee. And the response to that position of absolute acquiescence has been a threefold increase of settlers in the West Bank, the building of the wall that confiscates 13% of the West Bank has been the Judaization of Jerusalem and the entrenchment of the geographical and juridical divide between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So we also have empirical evidence to show that no matter what Palestinians have done from accepting these conditions to acquiescing to all the terms, Netanyahu has now turned around and said, never, ever, ever will there be a Palestinian state. And it's curious to me, when will we believe him? When will we believe him? So the third point that I want to make is then about these preconditions, which regards Hamas and Fatah. And I think Yusuf has already made this point that there can be no agreement without a uni unity government. And the US has set ample precedent of dealing with, um, of negotiating with those that they have deemed as terrorists on, uh, designated terrorists on their State Department um, uh, designations. And the fourth point that I want to make is that Hamas has proven itself to be a pragmatic political player as evidenced by the fact that it has amended its charter, severed its ties with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and moved from Syria to Qatar in recent years, and yet we continue to deal with it as an irrational player when what we've seen right now in this recent decision to actually re, you know, give its control back to its rival political party, we have ample evidence that shows us that Hamas is a political, pragmatic uh, player and not an, irrational, not an irrational actor that's hell-bent on destruction and motivated by hate. So again, the question is, at which point do we allow empiricism to trump biases, no pun intended, um, in order to uh, uh, chart a path forward that insists on engaging with this unity government as it is? Thank you, Noura. A, a number of uh, questions also focus on the theme of supporting uh, Palestinian refugees, uh, and specifically in uh, Lebanon and also uh, in Gaza. What what can be done, uh, particularly for the refugee communities there in Gaza? We know it's uh, nearly 80% of the population, which is um, uh, refugees from from 1948 or their descendants. Um, and the situation facing Palestinian refugees in Lebanon is uh, perhaps the most dire of all. Um, so what, what is it that can be done to specifically address uh, and serve the needs of those communities? So let me take a shot. So one, one, one thing I was very encouraged by in my recent visit to Palestine and Lebanon is that ANIRA really works indiscriminately with all communities. We obviously have a focus on refugees and particularly Palestinian refugees. Uh, but we're now working in Lebanon with Syrian refugees, with the, the Palestinians who were refugees in Syria and are now in Lebanon, but also with Syrian 
uh, refugees and with host communities and for development to work and for communities to uh, live together, uh, grow together, you've, you've got to work across communities. And so that was one of the more, more encouraging things I saw of Anira's work. And as you know, a lot of, a lot of, the, uh, a lot of the aid and government service provision uh, or, or service provision, because often in, in Lebanon it's not the government, it's you, you get your services from your sectarian organization, your, your religious or your NGO organization that serves your community. Um, and that can, that can make for very fractured living. Um, and as you know, tensions in, in Lebanon are, 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 uh, are quite acute. I mean, it's not surprising if you just think about the numbers, right? Imagine in, if in the US suddenly we had more than 400 million people here and 100 million of them were, were, were Syrian refugees. So that's what, that's what Lebanon is, is facing. But on top of that, the sectarianism that exists there uh, exacerbates rather than alleviates, I think, a lot of those tensions. And so we think it's critical to be working across communities with, with both communities. If you're talking about a, a town where some huge percentage, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of the inhabitants are now refugees, you also have to work with the host community or trying to figure this out. Um, and we've been, we've been doing that. We've been doing that well. I just want to say something here to say that the, the question of Palestinian refugees in the Middle East is cannot be examined today without addressing the profound refugee crisis throughout the Middle East. So the Middle East is actually home and, 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 and the source of the highest concentration of refugees in the world. And so it's not Palestinian refugees happen to be the greatest population amongst them, but Syrian refugees, Yemeni refugees, Somali refugees, Sudani refugees are now um, in a very precarious, vulnerable position across the Middle East where most of, most of the, the, the states in the Middle East have not signed on to the 1951 Refugee Convention, meaning that they can shirk their responsibilities to absorb to rehabilitate, to restitute, and to place, uh, these are the durable solutions for refugees under the conventions, to place them in another host country. And instead, many of these refugees are facing uh, refoulement to their sites of, of, uh, of their original site uh, where they were expelled or had to flee, where they're subject to great destitution. So part of answering this question is, other states need to open up their borders to absorb these refugees and to create temporary refugee regimes um, that we have international law that helps us outline what that looks like and provides their basic rights. If not that, then a human rights regime. Turkey, Jordan, um, Egypt, and Lebanon are the only states that have um, demonstrated some type of uh, temporary protection regime, and it's not enough. It's not enough. The Palestinian refugee crisis becomes the last thing on the list of priorities, subject to donor fatigue, if we don't address the crisis of these other refugee populations from these other countries. And that means a responsibility across the entire Middle East to address it. Let, let me just underscore that. I, that. I agree entirely. You know, I don't know that people realize that half, just about half of the 22.5 million refugees in the world today are Palestinian or Syrian. Um, People know there are a lot of Syrian refugees, but I don't think they, they recognize that about five and a half million of each uh, make up half of the total in the world. So we absolutely are committed um, to con continuing a focus on, on both Palestinian and Syrian refugees. We all have to. 
Thank you both. We're just about uh, out of time, but we did get a question here that I, I want to make sure uh, we address from uh, a student in the audience. Uh, and maybe each of us could just very quickly um, rattle off any ideas that they may have. Are there opportunities for Palestinian students to intern in the United States? Uh, and I can tell you at our organization, we are always looking uh, for young, bright, uh, and ambitious Palestinian students uh, who uh, can add to the energy and, and dynamism in our work. So please do check us uh, out among with uh, the other organizations represented here. Yeah, no, there are, there are ample opportunities. There are organizations like Atlas Core you should look at as well that also bring, bring students and many other programs uh, that are there to support um, Palestinians and others, frankly, on, on doing internships or like one-year fellowships in, in the United States. Look, uh, visas are scandalously too hard for Palestinians to get, particularly Gazans, and that has to change. There has to be... Uh, there has to be more compassion and humanitarianism in terms of, of, uh, of permanent entry and visas for short-term um, internships or work. In terms of Anira, yes, we have internships. The more interesting internships, I would say, are probably in Palestine and Lebanon, and we have interns there, and we would welcome um, hearing from Palestinians uh, who would like to do internships with us. Absolutely, yes. And so to whoever that young student is, um, whatever, the only thing that I'll advise is not specific organizations, but just don't stop knocking on doors until you get the internship that you want, and that'll lead you on to the next one. Persistence is key. So uh, with that, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists for their contributions uh, today, and thank you all for being uh, in attendance, and once again, uh, thanking the, the National Council uh, for keeping Palestine at the top of the agenda. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Dr. Anthony for. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Yusuf, and thank you, all of the <clears throat> panelists, for a very stimulating, insightful, informative uh, uh, session here.